it had to be almost 10 years ago when Jan, <clears throat> my wife Jan and I would visit our daughter Courtney and her husband Joel and there I think at that time three kids Joan was it they had three kids they now have five and um, Joel was a CB and went to Afghanistan uh, at 9-11 with a gang of guys who made the landing strip built the barracks built the prison for the Marines and Army then to come uh, when the war first started and uh, it was wonderful at a distance to watch how you all cared for Courtney and the kids while he was gone. They still speak about that, and they send their greetings this morning. She Facebooked me yesterday and said, please tell them how much we love that church. So thank you from a parent for the incredible way you cared for my kids, uh, while, especially while Joel was in Afghanistan. Um, in the meantime, he's been promoted to c commander after here. I think he was four years in D.C., three years in Stuttgart. This summer they moved to... Great Lakes Naval Training Center in north of Chicago where he's the public works officer there. Um, let me just share just a quick moment about my own ministry with our denomination. Uh, I swore in my youth I would never be a denominational bureaucrat and after t 20 years of pastoral ministry including a church plant in, Al in Montgomery, Alabama, I became the assistant coordinator at MNA in Atlanta and then eight for eight years and then eight years at, on the staff at Covenant Seminary that's where I met Andy Bagby. Um, and now, almost eight years, back with Mission to North America, living in St. Louis, I travel and identify and invest in potential church planters. So I visit mostly seminaries. Well, why do we need church planters? Well, the third largest English mission field in the world is this country. We'll be talking about that a little bit more during the week. But the very best means of evangelism, of seeing men and women, boys and girls come to Christ, the very best method of evangelism under heaven is starting a new church. We have, at MA, we have any one time 150 places where people are saying, come help us, help the Presbytery start a new PCA church. What's the biggest need? Is it money? It's not money. Is it places? No, there's plenty of opportunities. The biggest need is men and women who are called by God, have a walk with him, who are able to take that risky venture like Scott and start a church. And so I'm in a pre-recruiting kind of phase, visiting mostly seminary campuses, challenging young men and women to be a part of that great movement of seeing new churches started. Um, I'm married to Jan, some uh, 45 years of ministry and marriage, and we have the three grown children, our oldest uh, is uh, on a church planning team in London. Our youngest uh, uh, is in St. Louis, married to our pastor's oldest son. So 13 grandkids. I remember Chris, I remember his first car as a teenager. Someone gave us, gave him, a 1965 Dodge. And if you remember, those things were like tanks. You could not destroy them. And uh, he was in hog heaven because he could now drive his paper route instead of biking it. But he quickly discovered that he had more to deliver than papers because he also had his two younger sisters to deliver, hither and yon, according to mom and dad, and he wasn't too happy about that. Chris had to learn that even though the car was a gift to him, it wasn't about him. 
That's the theme of Psalm 67 this morning, and I'm so glad that you'll we'll have it sung afterward. It'll almost be a reinforcement of the scripture. Watch for that theme as, as we follow along and as I read. God blesses us and blesses us, but it's not all about us. Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. You see that twofold theme already? Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Here in Psalm 67 is that gentle interplay, a beautiful interplay of these twin thoughts about God's, on the one hand, incredible outpouring of love and blessing on me. On the other hand, it's clear. It's not really about us. He showers his love on us to be sure. But his design is a larger kingdom plan. He's reaching the nations, all peoples, all peoples. Did you see those, those two themes? The, the ideas interweave. Verse 1 has the one, may God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us. Verse 2 has the other, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power to all nations. God's smiling favor on the one hand is making his ways known to the earth on the other. God is for us but it ain't about us. It's a clear pattern here in Psalm 67, but I'm convinced it's a clear pattern throughout all of Scripture. Abraham was called, and God blessed him and blessed him and made him a, 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 the, the father of nations. But Abraham was called to be a blessing to the world. Israel was called to be God's special chosen people, but Israel was called to be a light to the Gentiles a calling which often they forsook. Again, we're blessed, we're blessed, but that's not where it stops. So many of my struggles and challenges come when I forget one or the other of those twin truths. I forget the depth of God's blessing and love for me. Or I forget and ignore that my life and God's blessing are not about me. It's about the nations. God is reaching the nations beginning next door. For a few minutes, then, let's reflect on those two. That, that's the outline. There's two, two points in this sermon. The two points that the psalmist is making. First, I must confess, often I don't have the confidence really to claim verses 1 and 6 that God is gracious and blesses me and loves me. Do I really, do we really believe that? That God really blesses me? That he loves me? When we struggle, when I struggle, the real issue so often, underlying all other issues is, does God really love me? Does God really care? Where is God? Here's the way, in my life at least, that struggle comes. Two perspectives. On the one hand, I look outside at my circumstances as they batter me, and I say, 
Where's God? How could this happen to me if God loves me? You know, on the other hand, I look inside myself and say, if I keep on doing this and keep on doing this, how could God love me? You know those? I look outside and if this is happening to me, in the painful circumstances, I conclude that how can God love me? Where is he? Now, I would never really say that. We never say that publicly because, after all, we're Presbyterians and we know theologically what the truth is. But sometimes our fear and our negativity and our anxiety and our lack of joy in the middle of the, of the trials can belie our churchy smile. And when those storms hit, we wonder, where is God where is his love? On the other hand, I can look deep inside myself and see my insecurity, see my lust, see my posturing, my self-defensiveness, see my self-absorption, my addictions, my idolatries. And I can conclude, how could God love me? If I keep doing that, if I keep being this, if I get tired of me, surely God must. You ever feel that? So whether something comes from the outside and you wonder, where is God? Or something bubbles up in your own self and you say, well, how could God love me? Those two sides of that coin, I don't know about you, but I wrestle with that. Does God really bless me? Do you know that struggle to know the love of God on a day-to-day -day basis? Even as Christians, I think sometimes we assume that to keep the Father's smile and favor. I've got to work hard to keep him smiling at me, for me. I've got to do, do the right thing to keep the Father's smile. We've just come through Christmas. About a month ago, wasn't it? Um, and I, I love the mall at Christmas. I don't love shopping at the mall. I don't love navigating the crowds. What I like is walking up the top and looking down and seeing Santa. And seeing the children and the packages and the children on his knee and you pay the 15 bucks for the picture and all that stuff. And because uh, increasingly Santa and Christmas are such a great um, symbol to me of God's grace. You remember that great hymn of the church, you better watch out, you better not cry. You... <laughs> Where's the... Maybe with us, we can sing it. You... We won't do that. <laughs> You know, you know how it goes. God-like. He knows when you're... In, how does it go? So somebody sing it. You know, he knows when you're awake. He knows when you're this. He knows when you're that. So what? Be good for goodness sake. You could have sung it. But it is a... It, it, interestingly, God-like. And so when the child is on Santa's knee, what's the first question Santa asked? What do you want for Christmas? And then, what does the Santa ask? Have you been good? And of course, all the kids lie. <laughs> Just like we did, right? All the kids lie. Isn't it interesting? According to whatever tradition of yours is about Santa, Santa brings good gifts to whom? To boys and girls who've been good. They have to earn the gifts from Santa. Santa, you see, is merit-based. You have to merit goodness from Santa, right? 
Otherwise, depending on your own tradition, the stocking would be filled with switches or coal or ashes, whatever. Santa is merit-based. Too often, I'm afraid, we think of God as if he's like Santa. God will really smile on me today and only care for me if I'm really the right kind of Christian or I have devotions every morning or do this or not do that. And I have to try and try and try and try and try. And sometimes I just don't measure up. Or if bad things happen to me, then somehow the Lord's love has waned and he's out to get me. And I see him as my judge and not my father. And the work of Jesus on the cross is just not enough. I have to add my own efforts to keep the Father's smile. So we have to be the right kind of people and pretend to be the right kind of people and never let our slip show, as it were, of our own brokenness and sin. Because, after all, we've got to be right because that's how we get our way into the Father's smile. Some of you may be investigating this Christianity stuff, and, or maybe you've been burned by the church. And you may be dipping your toe over here back into thinking about this Christianity thing all over again. Either way, you may be under the misapprehension uh, that Christianity is like every other religion. That in the, the bottom line, the way you get to God or have you put it is essentially like Santa. You have to perform. You have to do what he says. You, one way or the other, you have to do it. And unfortunately, sometimes we in the church may have given you that impression, for which I'm, I'm sorry. I'm so glad to tell you or remind you that Christianity is like no other religion on earth. Let me show you what I mean by going back to the illustration of Santa Claus. The funny thing is, back at the mall, where the parents were leaving with the kids from Santa, they have kids under, under tow, but they also have packages. Packages? Packages? Do you ever know a parent who weighs his kids' actions during the year, keeps track, and if the bad outdoes the good, gives them ashes and coal or switches? Not even bad parents do that. On Christmas morning, those packages were going to those kids, regardless of how they behaved that year. Isn't that interesting? While Santa is merit, Christmas is grace. The gifts come to the children regardless of how they've been, just because they're loved by the parent, right? As I walked around the gallery this Christmas and looked again at Santa, I found myself saying, thank you, Lord, thank you, that you you're not like Santa, you're like Christmas. Brother, Christmas is like you. You're gracious to me. You bless me. You make your face shine on me like the psalm said, and it's really not my merit. It's just because you love me. You delight in me. And you delight in your son Jesus, and I'm in him. He lived that life for me I could have never lived. And he died that death for me that I deserve to die. And you, Father, see him. And you take him instead of me. He was judged on my behalf. See, for those of you who are wrestling with Christianity, 
Do you see the difference in Christianity and any other religion? Instead of God saying, you've got to perform for me, you've got to do this and earn your way, he's saying, no, 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 no. It's based on what Jesus has already done for you. The difference is absolutely huge between Christianity and any other way of of religion. That is huge. I was born in Kosciuszko, way up the road, raised in South Carolina. I was not born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I was born with, with grits in my mouth. I, I pastored for 10 years in Montgomery, Alabama. I have a deep uh, appreciation and love for uh, us in the South. I also know how easy it is for us in Southern Christianity for our Christianity to be largely a cultural thing with, based on a lot of shame and a lot of status, where sometimes our Christianity can be that performance-based thing. You know what I mean? And we're, we're very cons- can be, we can be really concerned about what people think of us and how we look and how we behave, and so the right Christian would never do the right... And so we have this dance that we have to make sure that we're saying the right things. And sometimes we can be so trapped in that performance mode that we don't know the freedom of the love of God because of Jesus. I want to invite all of us to come back. Come back. Don't don't let Satan pull a Santa on you. Don't let Satan pull a Santa on you and use your habitual sin to whisper that God couldn't possibly love you. Don't let him spiritualize the pain in your life into God's machinations to get his pound of flesh out of you again. Don't let your own emotional baggage that sometimes makes it difficult to receive love, you know what I mean? Some of it. Don't wallow there. Wallow instead in the raw evidence of the love of God. What is the evidence of God's love? Is it your circumstances or your sin? No, it's the cross of Jesus. That's the, the thermometer of God's love for you. Tell yourself the truth through the yearning of the psalmist. God is gracious to me and blesses me and makes his face shine upon me just because of Jesus. Now, the psalmist has a clear other side of the coin, though, doesn't he? They're twin truths. The psalmist is not going to let us get away with cocooning in our own little happy lives with enjoying what God is doing for us. At the beginning, at the end, what is the Lord's goal in the psalm? What does the text say? It's the nations. It's all peoples of the earth. Verses 3 and 5, the psalmist longs for all the peoples to praise the Lord. The blessing of God has far greater ends than any of my happiness or security or fulfillment. He is after his kingdom. And that longing is culminated in verse 7. All the ends of the earth will fear him. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Verses 2, 3, 4, 5, 7. They reiterate that same theme. Yes, God delights in us, but it's not about us. God's burden is that his way be known on all the earth, his salvation among all nations. That's his goal, and that's what he's doing. Remember when Paul was first named Saul, and he was a 
rabid, dragon-like attacker of Christians. And he had that remarkable encounter on the road to Damascus with Jesus. God, and his eyes were covered over with scales and he was there blinded and God told Ananias to go visit him. Ananias had a vision of, Saul had had a vision of Ananias coming to help him. And and, uh, it's interesting in Acts that Ananias reminds God of Saul's past as if God needed reminding. And Ananias says, Lord, this guy, he's been arresting and killing Christians and he's come now from Jerusalem to get us too. Remember, go back and look sometime at, at God's response to Ananias. It's almost as if he ignores, well he does, he totally ignores Ananias' legitimate concerns. Here's what God says. He is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before the Gentiles. I'll show him how much he has to suffer for my sake. Go on. He said, Ananias, do you think this is a matter of your own personal safety? Do you think this is a matter of your comfort? Your welfare, your security? I have plans that will change the history of the world. And I want this man to be a part of it. I want you to be a part of it. Go on, get back to work. That's essentially what God is saying. Even our own conversion has less to do with us and more to do where God is leading all of us, the church, to see the nations come to Jesus. I've been so convicted by Psalm 67 and passages like this. Because sometimes if, if you could get into my brain and follow me around, watch my concerns, listening to my prayers, listening to my daydreaming, see my checkbook, see my priorities, I'm so glad you can't. I'm afraid you'd probably come to the conclusion too often accurately that I think God, that, my, that I think God should spend his whole day making sure that I am happy, fulfilled, and secure and safe. You get the impression that I am the center of the universe. And actually, most of the problems I have is because other people don't agree with that. You know, Stop and think. How many problems you get into because other people don't agree that you are the center of the universe. And when I think of, I hate to admit, even when I think of the promises of God to claim, I love promises like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Or God is causing all things to to come to my benefit, to my good. I can even be self-absorbed in the promises I choose to claim. See, too often I'm not equally gripped by other true promises of the Bible. For example, he will rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The desert tribes will bow before him and his enemies lick the dust and all nations will serve him. That is a promise I need to believe and act on and it would change my life. Or this promise. He is making a kingdom and priests of men from every tribe and language and people and nation. That is a promise that ought to impact my life, if I believe it. With all my blessings, do I really claim and act on those kinds of promises, claiming and acting God's promises to extend his kingdom that will move me away from self-absorption to thinking about people out there 
Instead of reading the newspaper about Tunisia and the president leaving and the hubbub and, the, and saying, oh, well, what's going on in Tunisia? I will say, whoa, what is God doing in Tunisia? And I will Google Tunisia and say, Christians in Tunisia. And I'll say, what is God up to in Tunisia? This is not about me. What are you doing there, God? You see, to believe those promises turns me outward around the world and even here. I can spend more time checking email and reading my new book of mysteries at night than thinking about or praying for my neighbors on my block. They, they don't even be a, become a category for me. More about my daughter's struggle with her six kids in St. Louis than the thousands of street kids in Bogota or Bangkok who have no parent at all. What's happening to them? They don't even exist for me. Where's God's heart? Where is God's heart? I need to hear the psalmist's yearning. May your ways be known in all the earth. What's really happening to your missionaries? Do you just pray for missionaries generically? Lord, bless, bless Woody today. Bless Jody tomorrow. Or do, have, have you taken the time, really, to read their letters, write them, email them, and find out how do we pray? Where are you suffering? Where are you struggling? What can I pray for you? Do you have God's heart for there, for those, those ministries? I can be frustrated about the problems of our church starting a, starting a second site down in South City because my best friend is now, I don't ever see Mark and Carmen anymore. They're, rah, 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 I can, rah, rah. I can stop, I, I have to stop and say, wait, wait, wait. Why did we make the decision to start another site of our same church? It was to reach primarily those refugees. Now fully half of those 300 people there are Liberian and Nepalese and, and Burmese and Congolese. That's, that's God's heart, is to reach the nations. This is especially true of us as God's people. Why are we here as First Church? I don't know about you all, but as in my travels... If, if I look at the budget and the hours engaged in ministries, the motivations for decisions, the majority of what most churches do is for themselves, frankly. And, and that's totally understandable because there's no unchurched person on committees. There's no Indonesian Muslim on the planning group or the budget committee. There's no Chilean peasant or secular businessman on the session. So who represents the needs of the unchurched here and overseas when decisions are made. See, if we're not careful, when church decisions are made, whose needs are most considered? Moi. My needs. Thank you. And if my needs aren't met, thank you, there's another church down the street. I can find it. Meet my needs. Where I can be fed. Sorry, I'm... You know what I'm talking about. Uh, one church told its assistant pastor that the time he spent out in the community with unchurched people had to be on his own time. He was to be in the office working with members. That that was not a part of his call to reach the community. That was a PCA church. All I'm saying is, where's God's heart, folks? Where's God's heart? And, and you personally, do, are there specific unchurched folk in your life that you're seeking to build a relationship with? 
to share the love of, not, not even share your faith, just to share Christ's love. Are there people that you're praying for in your block, at your school, in your office, where you're thinking, what are their hurts? What are their fears? What are their aspirations? How do they need love? Are there decisions this church makes that have little to do with members and more to do with lost people or people overseas? Some of you who are checking Jesus out, who are here today, you may have had experience with some churches where, where we may have seemed more anxious in getting your spiritual scalp than in showing you the love of Jesus. Uh, and at that point, we were not like Jesus. I, I don't think that happens here. In fact, you may, you may be being drawn here to this crazy group because the opposite has happened. And in a real sense, you're finding Jesus again through the love of this fallible, broken bunch of sinners who love Jesus and love you. How does this happen, by the way, as we wrap up? How does it happen that I grow in God's heart for the lost around the world, even beginning next door? Well, if you're taking notes, write this down. Here's how. To get God's heart like Psalm 67 reflects. Be sure to grit your teeth and try harder. A layer of guilt and some hard work will really help a little, sort of. But your love for others around you will eventually come out fake to them and burdensome to you, and it won't last. You've tried that before, haven't you? You've tried to do what's right. You try to muster up, muster it up. Oh, I'm going to go. I know I'm supposed to love him. I'll go. It doesn't last. And you'll end up giving and praying to missions for your missionaries out of duty, out of guilt, and it'll taper off. How do we get God's heart for the nations? It comes, my friends, I'm convinced. I think the psalm teaches it. It comes more and more as I am melted all over again by God's heart of love for me. That he's blessed me. I'm eternally loved. That's the message of Psalm 67. God loves and blesses me. The key to gaining God's heart is re-experiencing God's heart. Does that make sense? The key to gaining his heart for others is re-experiencing his heart for me. The key to the second point of the sermon is the first point. God blesses us and that will melt my heart as I come to grips with that all over again. Let me give you one illustration as I close. Lucy is a member of our multicultural church in St. Louis. And 15 years ago when Jan and I were visiting, she was on the worship team. And one morning that Sunday after a powerful hymn about the love of God, she didn't stop. They were singing up here and the congregation stood and the song was over and she was saying, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. Praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. And she was weeping. Her hands were up in praise. I was visiting. My hands were cold and clammy. After all, I am a Presbyterian. (laughs) Praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus, praise Jesus. She wouldn't stop congregation was mesmerized. Pastor Barry, so wise, came, just put his arm around her. She quieted down, and she said, he said, Pastor Barry said, it's okay, folks, it's okay. 
It's okay. If you knew what Lucy had been delivered from, drugs, the street, and so much more, he said, you'd understand why she's here lost in wonder, love, and praise. You know what hit me? That if I really understood, if I really understood what Jesus had done for me, how God had blessed me, how Jesus had loved me, a dirty sinner that I am, a recovering Pharisee, if I had really understood what Jesus had done for me, I would have been up there with her. You see what I mean by we gain God's heart, heart by re-experiencing God's heart. So this morning I say, come back, all of us, come back to Jesus and be reinvigorated by his love as we then seek to reach the world. Because that's his heart. Reflect then and absorb on how much God loves you and ask him to give you his heart for the nations. Let's pray. Father, today may we be able to grasp in a new way all over again how gracious your smile, your blessing has been to us, how blessed we are, how warmly you smile on us. Melt our hearts with what it means to be loved by you, blessed by you so freely because of Jesus. And then grip our hearts with your great passions for the peoples of the world, even the ones next door. God, we trust your promise. You will bless us and all the ends of the earth will fear you. Through Christ our King, amen.